0: Evening, church. I'm going to be reading Exodus 12, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt This month shall be the, for you the, month, the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So, all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Kill the lambs, sorry. <laughs> Kill the lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at that night, roasted on the fire with uneven bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, or, um, but roasted its heads and its, with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For this I will pass through Israel. Uh, For I will pass through Israel. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I pass through the land of... It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the land... uh, strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You stretch out your right hand. And the earth swallows your enemies.
1: In your unfailing
0: love, you will lead the people you have redeemed.
1: Thank you, Gina. You made me hungry after reading that about the the bride lamb. This is a Heritage Day text. Um, (laughs) Guys, it is so good to be with everyone in the venue. This just feels amazing. Worship was amazing. I've had an incredibly rich weekend um on Friday we went um advanced the network of churches globally that we joined to and, and partner with, ran a, a um advanced future shapers weekend away in the Cape where we basically had a bunch of Western Cape churches um, send some leaders who who are, just love Jesus, on fire for Him. And we had 65 people from different churches around Cape Town together for a weekend, just trying to make sense of—and they're kind of all in that decision decade, that decade from about 18 to 28, where you make some of the big decisions in your life and set trajectories for your, for your life in those decisions. And it was just so amazing— To be with people who were on fire for Jesus, literally on the very first strum of the chord, on the first day before a word had been sung, it was like, ding, we were worshiping. It was just like glory. And everyone, it's like 65 people felt like 500. And so I've been worshiping since then. And then this morning in church, I was worshiping. And now this evening, and now my voice is going. But it's been worth it to just be with people again and worshiping Jesus together and seeing what he's doing in and around Cape Town and other churches was amazing. It's also so good to be together. Layla is so excited that we get to do church again. Last week, she came to both meetings. In the morning, I said, I'm going to church. Do you want to come with me? She says, government said, I'm not allowed to. I'm raising a conspiracy theorist. And she's like, am I allowed to now? I'm like, yes. Can we go to both? And then as we're driving here, she's like, that car's going to church. That car's going to church. She thought every car was going to church. Why wouldn't you go to church now that we're allowed? And it is just so good to be with everybody. And uh, I didn't even introduce myself. My name's Ian, <laughs> one of the pastors here. I just launched straight in. If you're new, if you're online joining us, it's great to, to meet you. I'd love to meet you after this meeting if you're new um, and in the venue with us for the first time. Now, we are in Exodus. We've uh, done four weeks, three weeks. It was Ryan, me, me. Kyle, me there, four weeks. And, um, Ryan kind of launched it with a, a, a broad overview of Exodus and what we could expect and what God was going to do in the book of Exodus. And then we looked at Moses and his, the, the moment that God revealed himself to Moses and called Moses to go and rescue, redeem his people, be a mediator. And then last week, Kyle took us through nine of the plagues and we saw he did so well to just show us that God's judgments are good and right. That, God, that God's justice is a good thing. And in those two things, there is God's patience and mercy to people who don't deserve it. And this week, we pick up in um, the, last, the last plague, Plague 10, and, and that's where we're going to be going that, this evening. But, but before we get there, I want to ask everyone a question. It's, for some of us, it's been a while since we've been in person And coming to church, having to get up, you know, put some clothes on and then go to a venue is very different to like kind of waking up from your afternoon nap, not having to get dressed, um, just sitting down in front of a TV, grabbing or or running from the event that you were doing in the afternoon and just turning on your phone as you're driving home. It's, It's very different coming to church because you know, and the reason it's different is you know you're going to meet people. You know you're going to see people. And, and I wonder what your feeling was as you were moving towards this building, knowing that you're going to be with God's people. I wonder if there was a sense of burden. I wonder if there was a sense of, I'm excited, but man, they better not find out about this stuff. And, and we start putting on masks, but different kinds of masks, as we head towards this building. Masks we didn't have to wear when we were just in front of a, a computer screen watching. I wonder how many of us experienced that. It's been a while. And um, I wonder how many of us came to church this evening feeling burdened. We're in a season that is more burdensome than most, where there's lots of legitimate reasons to feel burdened. I wonder how you arrived. Maybe you arrived bouncing off the walls, and that's amazing. I'm really excited for you. But you know, this space, this community, should be a community that anyone walks through those doors and feels free to arrive as they are. And if people arrive in this community not feeling free to arrive as they are, we're missing something. You might not stay the same, but it is fine to arrive as you are and be honest with where you're at. And the reason I say that is because at the center of the plague, of all places, is this beautiful invitation from God. In fact, at the center of the Christian faith is this wonderful and beautiful invitation from Jesus himself And we read it in Matthew 11. It says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's the center of the the Christian message. Jesus inviting us to a place of rest. And as we look at plague number 12, uh, 10 in chapter 12, we're going to look at it under these headings. We're going to see the triumph of God, we're going to see the grace of God, and we're going to see the Lamb of God. And at the center of everything that we speak about this evening, I want you to just be reminded is this wonderful message, come in and encounter me and find rest for your soul. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in. God, we love you, we need you, you are good, you are alive, you are powerfully at work in this world, you are transforming lives and hearts, your message is profound, it is powerful, when we encounter it, it, it demands a response, it brings life, God, it's, we've, we are a people who said we want to follow you, and God, I pray that as we, we come to you tonight and sit under your word we trust that you will speak to us. And God, for those of us who arrive burdened or feeling like we have to just pretend we're not quite who hide some parts of ourselves and pretend, not let people see the full, our full selves, God, would you remove those masks as we sit under your word? Would you show how we get to come to you as we are by grace and mercy? God, would you meet us? Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you lift our burdens, and would you bring us rest? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Do I need that, or are you just being kind? Okay. So, we pick up in... in, um, this, this, final, this final plague, it is the final plague. This is the moment where, where God says to Moses, this is it. It's done. It's finished. This is the last plague. Through all the other plagues, I think Moses and Aaron and, this, and Pharaoh and the people of God were kind of wondering how many of these are going to go. And it was kind of a standoff between Pharaoh and Moses. But this is the moment in chapter 11, verse 1, where we read this. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. God says there will be nine plagues, but this tenth one, this is going to be the one where God will, will do something so profound that Pharaoh will finally let my people go. So significant, so unique, so powerful would this moment be that it would forever change the way that the Israelites did their calendar would literally change the start of the year and their calendar. So profound would this day be that God says it needs to be remembered in every generation from this day forward. You need to celebrate on this day a feast and this moment must be remembered. So God is now acting. He's saying enough is enough. This is the moment and you will remember it chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And chapter 12, verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So God comes to Moses and says, it's now the moment's, It's happening. You're about to experience freedom. Your calendar will change. You will remember this moment for every generation into the future. Get ready. And he sends Moses off first to go and speak to the people of God, and then he sends them off to go and speak to Pharaoh and initiate this tenth and final plague. And there's something beautiful that happens as Moses moves towards his people before God has actually finished liberating him from Israel and we see it in verse 11, uh, chapter 11 verse 2 speak now in the hearing of the people that they that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver gold jewelry and the lord gave the people favor in the sight of the egyptians i love that it's like gave favor it's like no more plagues, please. That's kind of that moment. And so they ask for jewelry. They ask for gold. And the Egyptians, they find favor, and the Egyptians give it to them. And then it goes on to say, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And why this moment is so beautiful is that before God fulfills the promise that he made to Moses to redeem his people from Egypt, he fulfills two promises other promises that he made at the burning bush. And if you remember, two, it's two weeks ago for us. It's, dec- it's not decades, but it's a while for them in the narrative that there is this, these two promises being fulfilled in this moment. And the first one that was made at the burning bush was that the, Egyptian, that the Israelites would leave Egypt with, with its wealth. And here you have this moment where, where God says to Moses, tell the people to ask people for their gold, and they give it to them. And they're going to leave with some of the wealth of Egypt. The people who've been in oppression for 400 years don't leave empty-handed. That's the first promise. And the second promise is fulfilled when we read that Moses was great in the land, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and his own people. And that's a fulfillment of God's promise that he would be with him. You see, we, I love this idea. I, I, don't love that. I love the reality that Moses, after God reveals himself, reveals his name, reveals his power. Remember what Moses said to God, please send someone else. Please send someone else. And God says, I won't send someone else, but I'll send someone with you. And you got Moses with this weak faith. And here, nine plagues later, you got Moses standing as one of the great men in Egypt, revered by all people. And that's God's fulfillment of his promise to Moses. I will be with you. My power goes with you. Now, we've got to be careful because we would like to associate with Moses and think, well, what it means for God to be with me is I'll become great in the land of Cape Town. No, we'd probably better to associate ourselves with the people of God. That's probably closer to where we fit into the story. Moses had a unique time in history. But what is beautiful and what does apply to us is that when God promises to be with us, he is with us. And for Moses, that was in the face of the greatest nation, the greatest king of the time. And so Moses goes from his people, and having seen God just fulfill these two promises of the burning bush, now to go and confront Pharaoh to see the final promise achieved. And he does, and as he does, what we see unfold is the triumph of God over false gods, human pride, and evil. Chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry through all the land of Egypt, such as there never, has never been, nor ever will be again. This is hard. You shouldn't be able to read this and just be like, oh, that seems right. That seems fair. It's a difficult one. Firstborn of everyone in Egypt will perish tonight. And... Um, We've got to understand what's going on. We've got to remind ourselves and locate ourselves in the reality that there is a battle going on between Pharaoh and God, Yahweh, about who is the true living God. Who is the true God who who has the power to give life and to take life? And there's this battle, this tussle between Pharaoh, and there is a pride in his heart where he is unrelenting to admit that he is not the true living God, But not only that, it's not just a battle between the true God and a false God. There's also something else going on here because in Exodus 4.22, this is what God says of his people. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And what we have is a, a, a jealous God, a, a loving God who is jealous over his child, his firstborn son, saying, Let them go. I've given you nine opportunities to let them go. And it has come to the point, your, your hardness of heart and your rebellion against me and your pride over me and your denial that I am Yahweh has come to this point. And it's either your firstborn or my firstborn. And so there's meaning in this plague. And God lays it out for Pharaoh. And we've seen throughout the plagues, last week at least, we saw how there were these tussles between Moses and Pharaoh where where Moses would offer mercy, where where Moses would say, if you would just bow your knee and surrender to the true God, admit that you find your place amongst the created Pharaoh, not amongst the, the gods, because there is only one true God. If you would just do this, this would cease. It would all stop. If you would just let my people go, it would stop. And Pharaoh would refuse time and time and time again. And then we read in chapter 11, verse 8, And he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of of Egypt, and we have this interaction with Pharaoh once again. And, and Moses storms out in anger. You can see Moses' frustration in this moment as he's going, Just stop it, Pharaoh. You're not God. It is so evident that you're not God. Let's stop it at this point before God reveals that He is the God that gives life and He is the God that takes life. Surrender your pride. Let the, people, the firstborn of God go. But instead, Pharaoh's heart is so full of human pride. Even though he's representing an entire nation and not just his family and firstborn, he says no. He says no. I mean, I wonder what goes on in Pharaoh's heart. I've been having this thought the last two weeks. Every time Moses walks up the stairs, you know, the first time Moses walks up the stairs into his palace, he's like, who are you? By the third time, I wonder if he's like, Oh, here we go. By this time, is he still going, I don't care what you say to me, Moses. No matter what you say, no matter what you threaten, I will never relent. I will always call myself a God. Or is he at least got some anxiety in his heart? Going, what now? What's going to happen? I don't know. But there is a pride and there is a stubbornness in the heart of Pharaoh that refuses to see Yahweh for who he is and let his people go. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12 says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. And this is God saying, I am standing against the false gods of Egypt. I am standing against the injustice and the oppression that you have put on my people for 400 years, and I'm standing against the pride of Pharaoh, and I will enact my justice. Later on, in Exodus 12, 23. we'll read it a bit later, but, but this act of, of God coming over is called the destroyer. But there would be an angel called the destroyer who would come over the land of Egypt and execute the judgment of God on the false gods of Egypt. So you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? Last week, Carl so powerfully expressed the reality that there is a day where Jesus will come and He will wrap up human history, and on that day, no one gets away with anything, and that God won't wink at injustice, that God takes injustice incredibly seriously. And in some ways, what, what Egypt experiences on this day is so unique, so profound, such a clear act of God's judgment on evil. That in many ways, it is a temporary and initial judgment day. It is a foretaste of what that day will be like when human history is wrapped up. And it's a terrible, terrible night. Chapter 12, verse 29 says this. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborns in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Imagine that, not a house where someone was not dead. And what we see happening here. Is revealing something about God. But it's also revealing something about how seriously God takes evil, how seriously God takes pride, and how seriously God opposes false gods who burden people. You look at this moment, you go, This is serious, this is weighty, this is big, and we can miss it. And we can ask the question, Is this fair? I find this hard. I've asked this question. I've been grappling as I've prepped. Is this fair? Is this just? Is this good? And as I've grappled with that question, I've realized I'm actually asking the wrong question. It's not about is this fair, but rather is God who he says he is? That's the starting point. It doesn't settle everything emotionally, but what it does do is locate me in the story and I realize he's creator, I'm created. And in this moment, God is revealing to me that he is the one that gives life and he is the one that takes life. And last week, we also heard that God's judgments are true, God's judgments are good, And if that is true, what this is showing is that there is real evil in oppressing a people for 400 years. And if we think it's not fair, maybe, just maybe, we are a generation of people who haven't experienced oppression. Remember how the story started? Remember how the story started with Moses, I mean, with Pharaoh, killing every born male for a season, and Moses escapes in a, in a basket. Remember that it's God who said, let my firstborn go. And Pharaoh's heart has refused. And this moment, as God enacts his justice and shows the seriousness of evil, shows the seriousness of pride, and shows the seriousness of what it is to live under false gods, we see Pharaoh's heart soften for a moment. We see Pharaoh's heart finally acknowledge who Yahweh is. In verse 31, Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. It's an amazing moment where it's, remember, it was when Moses and Aaron, Aaron arrived. It was, who is Yahweh? And now it's take, take your people, take the livestock, take it all, just leave. Just leave and go and serve Yahweh. He now knows who Yahweh is. But on top of that, he says, Moses, before you go, bless me. Bless me because your God is the true living God. And he sends him out. So Egypt that night would experience God's justice, they would experience God's judgment, and they would realize what it actually costs to oppress a people for 400 years and to serve false gods and to live in the pride of men. But what about the people of God? What was their experience of that night? What was their experience of the plague? For them, it was a completely different moment in history where they would experience the grace of God. You see, the plan that God had for them was very different to the plan that He had for the Egyptians. Read in 12 verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in a, in blood, in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorposts and the blood that is in the basin with the with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not l- allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. And that's God's plan for his people. I'm a firstborn son. Literally born first in my family. And I've, I've, as I've processed, I'm like, okay, now I'm a firstborn son. Now, if I'm in Egypt and Moses comes to people and he goes, the destroyer is going to move over this land and it's going to confront the most powerful person, Pharaoh, and the most powerful nation that is in existence, and it's going to go through that nation like a hot knife through butter. And then Moses, you come to me and you say that the thing that's going to stop the destroyer is a lamb. As a firstborn son, I'm not very confident. I don't have confidence in this moment. And it's a a lamb without blemish, pure white. It's literally a baby, white, fluffy lamb. Destroyer, lamb. I'm not confident as a firstborn son in Israel in this moment. I'm kind of looking around, can I try places with you, to a sibling nearby. But it's not just the unsettledness of the plan that that causes us to ask questions, but it's actually, hang on, we're the people of God, why do we need a lamb at all? God, in the the previous plagues, when there were flies, and we were in Goshen, you just... You just let the flies fly around us and they didn't come into our land. So God, I've got a much better plan. This this destroyer, just go around. Go around where the Israelites are. Just promise that you're not gonna even fly over us. Like you're not gonna even that wave isn't gonna come near us. Just just why not that? Why a lamb at all? Why, why a lamb at all? And answering that question about why a lamb is needed reveals two critical things about God and his relationship to his people. And the first thing that it reveals about God's relationship to his people is God's choosing of them is not earned. There isn't something special, there isn't something unique in them that made them worthy of God's choosing more than the Israel more than the Egyptians. Chapter 12, verse 7 says this, that God's going to enact these judgments that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God does make a distinction between Egypt and between Israel. There is a distinction. This is my firstborn. These are my children. I love them. I'm a jealous father of them. I will protect them and I will liberate them and I'll redeem them. But why? And in Deuteronomy 7 God's motivation for choosing his people is made explicit. And it's very interesting. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number. That's God's way of saying it's not because you were unique. It's not because you were mighty. It's not because you were special than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. We're going to unpack the need for a lamb a bit more, but right here in Deuteronomy, it is exposed that there isn't something more holy, more right, more good, more beautiful about the people of God that God chose him. Rather, God went to a pagan worshiper, moon-worshipping Abraham, and said, I have chosen to reveal myself. I choose to put my love on you. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've earned it. Out of my good choosing, I choose you, Abraham. And I reveal myself to you. And I make covenant with you. And I will make you a beautiful nation, and I will bring you into a land of rest. It's explicit in Deuteronomy. And so the people of God realize in this moment that their relationship to God is not about their ethnicity, it's not about their theology, it's not about their status, it's not about their wealth, it's not about their abilities, it's not about their gifting, it's not even about their oppression. God despises their oppression and we've seen how decisively he's moved against that evil. But it's not their oppression that makes them special in the eyes of God. It's that God, out of his love and good choosing, picked Abraham to reveal himself to him and make a covenant with him. We call this grace. It's unmerited favor. It's the undeserved kindness of God brought to us. When we were walking along, worshiping the moon, God goes, I will reveal myself in kindness to you. But then you still left the question, but but why a substitutionary lamb? Why did something have to die? And why did blood have to be painted on a lintel? Why can't the angel just not come near us, your people? Why a substitutionary lamb? And what that reveals, the second thing about God's relationship to his people, is that God's choosing of them was not because they deserved it morally. There wasn't something special in them that God chose them for, but neither was it because they were morally good. In fact, what it reveals is that they have a debt that they owe to God. And to understand that a bit more, we've got to unpack this idea of a firstborn and um, the calling of Abraham. So in Israel, in ancient times, the firstborn son represented the future hope of that family. They were the ones that would inherit it and look after their family. And and, um, Israel was built on families and households. And we struggle to grasp the fullness of what this means in an incredibly individualistic society. We are so individualistic that we struggle to understand what it is to find an identity in a family where we have a a representative and the firstborn would represent the well-being, the health, and the future of that family. I think more than ever, we're realizing that we are actually more codependent than we like to admit on each other. And that we are more shaped by people than we like to admit when we've been at home for weeks and months on end. We see that when we are separated from people, our minds and our bodies start to deteriorate. And we're starting to learn that this individualistic society of I do what's best for me and me alone is failing. But here there was a society where, where the family and community was one and we, we made sense of each other in light of each other. And that was represented in the firstborn son. And so you have Abraham... He receives this covenant. He receives this promise back in Genesis, and to make sense of this lamb, to make sense of the debt that we owe to God, we've got to go back there. And there's this 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 moment that, for us in modern years, just seems so bizarre, even horrifying, where God goes to Abraham and He says to Abraham, "You need to take Isaac, who was a miracle." God fulfilled his promise. Two people beyond childbearing age receive a son, Isaac. The hope of the nation, the promises and the rest that God had promised was all resting on Isaac. And, and God comes to Abraham and says, You need to sacrifice Abraham. And it's, it's for us, we're like, What? How's that possible? And if God had come to Abraham and said, Go into your tent and wipe out your family, he would say, That's not the voice of God. That will never happen. But because God had spoken about his firstborn, he realized in that moment what God was doing was calling in the debt. He realized that before God moved towards him in grace and kindness, that he was a pagan worshiper who worshiped, created false gods, that he was living life apart from God, and that God's kindness towards him was grace and that there was a debt between him and God. And that the fullness of that debt was represented in a firstborn son, which is why in Exodus 13 and in the law, every firstborn son would be consecrated to God, meaning belong to God. Their life belonged to God. And in this moment, um, Moses, I mean Abraham recognizes God is calling him the debt. But at the exact same moment, Abraham knows that God has made promises and made a covenant with him that he would be made into a nation and that the nation would find rest. And so this is a moment of faith. This is a moment of of Abraham trusting the grace of God, going, God, you're calling in the debt. I have to be obedient to that. But God, I'm also trusting that you promised a covenantal love and you promised me a future where you said you would fulfill that. How is this going to happen? And Isaac realizes this in Genesis 22 as they move towards this moment of sacrifice. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? He's kind of woken up. He's like, wait, we've got two out of the three things we need. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. This is not Abraham just going... Don't want to tell you what's happening. God's going to provide. He's not just deceiving his son. Now this is an act of faith for Abraham, where he's going. God will provide because my, uh, his whole promise is wrapped up in you. But you also belong to him. And what's amazing is Abraham would go, and at the moment that he was going to enact what God had asked him to enact, God says stop. And a ram is provided. And Abraham is, Isaac is spared. God provides the lamb. And what we see here in a substitutionary lamb is God saying, there is a debt, Israel. You are not more worthy. You are not more holy. You are not more righteous because of what exists in you. And there is a debt that exists. And so there needs to be a sacrificial, substitutionary lamb. And you've got to put that blood on your door for me to pass over you. Some people would say, "Well, why, why can't God just forgive? Why can't God just forgive them?" Well, Israel probably wouldn't have got, wanted God to just forgive Egypt, because you, the reality is, wherever there is evil, there is a debt. Think about it: if there's a murderer loose in society, either society pays the debt of that evil, and he just keeps living in society doing what he does. Or he pays the debt for that evil, and he gets arrested and put in prison. But there is always a debt to be paid when evil exists. And God is not a God who winks at evil, but he deals with it decisively. And so in the household of Egypt, uh, that night, there was either a dead son, firstborn, or there was a dead lamb. And the people of God realize in that moment that their relationship with God is not based on them and not based on their moral performance. It is based on the unmerited favor of God choosing them and it is based on a substitutionary lamb standing in their place. I'm still uncertain as a firstborn son in Israel in this moment. I'm still like the moment of killing the lamb at twilight, I'm watching it be done. I'm like, yeah, it's twilight now. Do it. Don't let it, don't be late. Do it now. When they're painting the lintel, I'm like, let's just do three coats. (laughs) I mean, I probably paint the whole house. I'm like, roof. I'm like, everywhere. I'm like, guys, this is serious. This is high risks for me. As a firstborn in Israel, as we move inside the house, where God has said, none of you can leave the house until it is done. You need to be under the blood. Stay in the house. I'm in the house. We're eating the meal. And I'm wondering, is the blood strong enough? Is it going to do what God said it would do? And I I would hear this wave of crying and tears and wailing as the destroyer passes over Israel. And I would be wondering is it working? Are those just Egyptians crying or are those my Israelite brothers crying too, sisters crying too? Is it working? And as midnight comes, I would be wondering, God, is the blood going to be sufficient? And then daybreak. And in that moment, I would realize I am free God has done what he said he would do. I am free. I am redeemed. I am no longer a slave in Israel. The false gods that had me in slavery, they have been defeated. Evil has been defeated. The pride of man has been defeated. As an Israelite that morning, as a firstborn that morning, I am free. And I am breathing because a lamb died in my place. His blood had covered me. And I was literally protected by it. In that moment, there is nothing more powerful to me than the blood of that lamb. Nothing more precious, nothing more beautiful, nothing more meaningful, nothing that I'm going to trust in more than the blood of that lamb to protect me. In that moment, I've come to learn that the blood is enough. The substitution was enough. And I am free in every sense of the word. In that moment, I probably feel more safe than I have ever felt as a firstborn Israelite. A.W. Tozer has this wonderful phrase. He says it so, so simply, if you could pop it up there. There is no place to hide but in the blood of the Lamb. It is the safest place to hide. And what we would come to, to learn is that the Lamb of God is Jesus. There's this random little piece of information that seems so insignificant as you go through chapter 11 and chapter 12, and you see it in chapter 12, verse 46, as God unpacks multiple times how this Passover is meant to be prepared, and it says, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. It's this little piece of information that seems insignificant and random. And there are multiple places in the New Testament that Jesus would be called the Lamb of God. But this is so beautiful. John, who witnessed Jesus die on the cross, says this of the moment in John 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, For the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. John speaking of himself now. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. There are three moments of the Lamb. Abraham needing a substitution so that God, by his grace, could fulfill his promises to him, and a ram is provided. Israel, in the Exodus, a lamb, pure, spotless, free from blemish, is sacrificed. And here, at the cross, the final lamb, Jesus himself, God with us, would bear the debt that is owed between us and God, once and for all, And his blood would be shed, but his bones would not be broken to fulfill the promises of Scripture. He is our Passover lamb. It is his blood that is on the doorpost of our life. And on that day, when God wraps up human history and deals decisively with evil, false gods, and the pride of the human heart, He will pass over us and we will be welcomed into eternity with him as sons and daughters. Not because of something in us and not because of our moral performance, but because of the blood over our lives, because he was substituted in our place. There is nothing safer, there is nothing more secure than the blood of Christ. I'm going to ask the band to join me up here. And as they join me up here, we're going to turn our attention to communion. I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Just as as I am, just as I am, just as you are, with one plea, but thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. It's beautiful. Our one plea, our one hope is the Lamb of God, Jesus, His blood spilt for us on our behalf, which empowers us to come as we are and experience His grace, His mercy, and His kindness. Jesus said that the Passover meal would be instituted for every generation forever. And as we come to this table, it is an institution of, it's a continuation of that Passover meal. It's a continued celebration of, of what God has done. And where there was a lamb in Israel, God himself became that lamb. And that's what we remember in this moment with this bread and this juice, is the, the breaking of Jesus' body and the spilling of his blood once and for all for all of those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to to get your stuff ready. Guys, these things are complicated. You need a PhD to open them. Layer one, get your wafer out. Layer two, get your juice out. If you end up with just one of them, just be grateful you got something, okay? So layer one, wafer, layer two, juice. This table... sounds like firecrackers going pop 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 it's like bubble wrap popping everywhere <laughs> this table is an invitation to come to God i read from matthew 11 come to me all of you who are weary and burdened i will give you rest take up my yoke and learn from me because i am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls my yoke is easy and my burden is light because jesus carried the burden on the cross his father forsake forsook him on a cross so that every burden that we carry is small compared to that. He invites us into lightness where furrow heaped burden upon people. Jesus lifts burdens off of people. And this stands as an invitation to come first and foremost to a person. For anyone in this room, anyone online, there is an invitation this evening. Come to the person of Jesus. If you haven't encountered Jesus, if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, that's where you, you don't start with this meal. You start with the person of this meal, Jesus Himself. And I'll lead you in a prayer shortly. But for the rest of us, I just want to read something over us as we and then we're gonna break the, we're gonna eat the bread and we're gonna drink the juice. For the rest of us who know Christ, come to him and find rest again. Come with confidence, come with joy, come with celebration that your sonship and daughtership is an act of His good choosing, His covenantal love, His grace, and His mercy. Come as you are to the table, but expect to encounter the living God who will change you. The blood is over your life. It is sure, it is strong, it is safe. We are those who will be passed over. Let's eat and drink together. Father, I pray that for anyone in this room who wants to come to you, first and foremost, anyone online who wants to come to you and encounter the living God, Yahweh, through the finished work of Jesus on a cross. If that's you, just pray this simple prayer with me. God, I humble myself before you. I know that you are God and I am created. And I worship you now as God. I repent of my pride. I repent of my worship of created things. And I receive your forgiveness. Fill me with your spirit. Teach me what it is to be a son, to be a daughter in the household of God. If you pray that prayer and you're doing business with Jesus, not me, not anyone else, you're doing business with Jesus and you are now a part of those who will be passed over. Not just passed over, but welcomed as sons and daughters in the house of God. Adopted. For the rest of us, I pray, God, that, that you would make these things that we know, that we've believed in, that we've built our lives on, that we've, we've thrown ourselves on the mercy of these truths, the reality that you substituted yourself, you paid the debt, your blood was spilt, we are covered. God, would you make them freshly real to us this evening? Would they not just be words that we hear, but would they change the way that we live our lives? Would they change the way that we feel about people? Would they change the way we feel about ourselves? Would they change the way we see the world? Would everything change because of these truths? God, I pray for this community. I pray that this community, by this truth, by this reality, that it wasn't something special in us and it wasn't our moral performance that got us into your presence, but your lamb and your blood. God, would that transform this community into the most welcoming, loving, gracious, kind community as we pursue you together. Would people feel the freedom to come as they are? And we'll trust you, Jesus, to do the business you need to do with us. Come and do deep work in us, we pray. We love you. Amen.